You're listening to Living Healthy Longer by the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging. I'm Alan Schenkel. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Pathology at Colorado State University. I've been here 18 years, and I'm really interested in, in diseases of the lung, and particularly how the immune cells move and, and invade and repair and damage the lung. Well, those are all things that I find really quite quite fascinating. And I've been doing mycobacteria research kind of on the side with all of my fellow collaborators for for well over a decade now. Yeah, my name is Ed Chan, C-H-A-N. I'm a lung physician here in Denver. Uh, I practice um, seeing patients uh, in both the outpatient clinic, uh, the wards, and in the ICU at the Rocky Mountain Regional VA Medical Center in Aurora. Um, I've been doing research on mycobacterial diseases, infections um, at National Jewish since 1993, around there. About five years ago, Dr. Schenkel was contacted by Dr. Chan and CSU Associate Professor Diane Ordway about some patients down in Denver who were suffering from a stubborn lung disease called non-tuberculosis mycobacterial infection, or NTM. Despite ongoing treatments, these patients were not responding to antibiotics, and their symptoms kept worsening. They had chronic coughs, fatigue, and fevers, and doctors were curious. Both doctors Chan and Ordway had an idea. Maybe patients aren't responding to antibiotics because their lungs have built up a biofilm, a kind of coating that shields bad bacteria from antibiotics so that the medicine cannot penetrate. If this were the case, then when Dr. Shankel analyzed lung tissues from the infected patients under a microscope, he should find an abundance of bad bacteria that are protected by a biofilm. Except that's not what he saw. And when I went looking for the bacteria, the first problem I, I discovered was that there weren't many bacteria and it looked like the antibiotics were actually working pretty well. And the second thing that really puzzled me as an immunologist is that there were lots and lots of a certain kind of a white blood cell called a lymphocyte. And what I was really intrigued by is that I knew these patients were immunocompetent, that they had normal functioning immune systems. And so I asked Ed and, and Diane, and I said, why are there so many lymphocytes in there and what kind of lymphocytes are they? And neither of them knew, which I found very troubling. And so I went looking in the scientific literature and I asked some pathologists who work on the disease. And I said, what are all these, all these lymphocytes? And, and nobody knew the answer. Um, it wasn't in the literature, nobody ever looked at it. So I got kind of excited by that and I realized I had the tools to, to look at this with what we do in our lab. And so I, I contacted Ed and I said, can we get more of these tissues? And I'd like to just, you know, even with a little tiny piece, I could really figure out what's going on there. And um, so we did that and what's super exciting about it is, is we're the first ones to actually ask this question, which in science is, is almost miraculous to, to stumble on a question that nobody's asked when it's so obvious that you should ask that question. Today on the show, Dr. Shankle and Chan are joining us to describe NTM infection, a lung disease that is becoming more common in adults over the age of 50. 
we discuss what are non-tuberculosis mycobacteria and what is it about certain people's immune responses that make them more susceptible to NTM infection than others. I hope you enjoy. I'm your host, Hannah Hallisker, and this is Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging at Colorado State University. So first of all, thank you both for being here today. I am excited, first off, to be recording like a three-way conversation remotely. I actually haven't done this before. (laughs) So thank you both for joining. Happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So I wonder if you can give us some definitions here. So NTM infections, what are those? What are mycobacterial infections just more generally? Let's start there. So mycobacteria is um, sort of like the, the family name, if you will, of a certain type of bacteria. And you can divide up uh, the, this family of mycobacteria into three main types of mycobacteria. One is mycobacterium tuberculosis that causes uh, the disease known as tuberculosis. The other one is mycobacterium um, leprae, which causes the disease known as leprosy. And the third group, which is um, a big group of different types of mycobacteria, is sort of like the the wastebasket of the other types of mycobacteria, is known as non-tuberculous mycobacteria. Basically, just saying that it's it's basically all mycobacteria that's other than the mycobacteria that causes tuberculosis and leprosy. Um, And NTM, this non-tuberculous mycobacteria, uh, is found widely in the environment. Um, it's found in in soil. It's found in water, and it's found in biofilms that uh, Alan alluded to. So you can have biofilms that it's that slimy stuff that's alongside uh, swimming pools and inside pipes. It's just teeming with bacteria, and because mycobacteria is very uh, resistant to chlorine, um, people have found that the predominant bacteria that's found in biofilms and pipes, for example, is really this non-tuberculous mycobacteria, N- NTM, because the other types of bacteria are killed by the chlorine. Um, and anything that aerosolizes soil, water, and the biofilms, you know, you can potentially inhale it in. And that's how some people get lung disease. And um, I always like to think of this NTM infection sort of, you know, um, three things have to really come together to, to establish disease in the lung because we're all exposed to it, but not all of us get this lung disease. So number one is that, um, um, you know, the, the, the pathogen itself. Some NTM are more virulent than others. So I, I suppose if you inhale some that are more virulent, you're more likely to get an established lung disease. The second is the host, you know, most people who get NTM lung disease probably have some kind of underlying um, either genetic or acquired defect that compromises their lung function or immunity. So for example, people with underlying emphysema are much more predisposed to getting NTM lung infection because they can't clear the organism as well because of their underlying lung disease. Um, And the third thing is uh, uh, 
the, the, the exposure, right? So you have to be exposed to something in the environment, like whatever they're doing, you know, are you using a lot of hot tub, sauna? Are you doing a lot of gardening? That could be ex making you exposed to this type of infection. So environmental factors, host factors, as well as the NTM itself, um, they can potentially create like a perfect storm to cause this type of infection in the lungs. Yeah. And Dr. Chan, who, what kind of patients are coming in, you know, with, with these infections? What's kind of the, the makeup of the population? Yeah, it, it varies based on different studies and probably depending on what type of um, clinical service a particular hospital or clinic has. Um, so, but, so for example, if you go to the VA hospital, which is mostly men still, right? Um, and a lot of people, uh, a lot of veterans smoked many years ago. So a lot of the NTM lung infection in the VA population are usually older men with underlying emphysema from their previous smoking history. Uh, at National Jewish, which is a referral center for NTM infections throughout the country, uh, most of the patients that we see here, like 80, 90% of them are women. And oftentimes they're women without any previous lung disease. They have lung disease now, probably because of their NTM, chronic NTM infection, um, but um, they have no known prior lung disease that appears to predispose them to that. And along that line, you know, the, the known risk factors other than emphysema for developing NTM lung disease is. Um, what we call bronchiectasis, which is permanent dilatation of the airways. And that dilatation can be due to prior infection that wasn't treated adequately and therefore they damage their airways. And that damaged airways is not able to clear out any bacteria that you could potentially inhale and the bacteria can set up shop there. Um, you know, for example, uh, cystic fibrosis, people with cystic fibrosis, they can get bronchiectasis and they're highly susceptible to getting NTM infection. And there's other genetic disorders that predispose individuals to getting bronchiectasis, and therefore NTM can set up shop there. And so the interest with NTM infections, let's get a bit deeper into that, is, you know, why even study this in the first place? I know that it goes back to um, this lung disease is very invasive. There's not very good treatments for it. So can you tell us a little about that? Uh, there's few epidemiologic studies uh, which suggest um, uh, that the prevalence uh, of NTM lung disease is increasing in the country and many parts of the world. Uh, other investigators from different parts of the world have also reported that as well. And it's probably not just due to increased awareness or better diagnostic technique. Uh, I'm sure it's partly related to that because, you know, we get CT scans now uh, often for other reasons. And um, CT scan is much more sensitive in picking up any abnormalities in the lung than a standard chest X-ray. So you could see abnormalities on the CT scan that you may not be able to see on a chest X-ray. And that, you know, prompts people to get sputum cultures and everything. But, 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 but we think that the actual prevalence is actually increasing. And 
Nobody really knows why, maybe due to global warming, I don't know, uh, more activities outdoors or indoors that predisposes individuals to getting exposed to NTM. But you know, you hit on a um, couple of uh, points, um, Hannah, that are, I think are important of why it's important to study this. And you mentioned that it's difficult to treat this infection, and that's true. Um, oftentimes, um, people, you know, how, you know, you may take antibiotic for seven days for bronchitis or for pneumonia. Well, this type of lung infection, you need to treat it for at least like about a year and a half. Not just, not just with one antibiotic, but oftentimes three or four or five different antibiotics at the same time. So despite multiple drugs for long periods of time, uh, the chance for actually a cure is probably like around 50%. And even those people who seem to be cured, they can have a recurrence of the infection again, in part because there may be other bacteria just that sort of wake up inside their body, or they may be exposed again to something, to a new bacteria in the environment again. So it's difficult to treat. Um, it, it can be very debilitating, as uh, Alan Schenkel uh, um, alluded to. You know, it can cause a lot of fatigue, uh, cough, sputum, um, and shortness of breath. You know, they just can't get any rest because of um, their severe debilitating uh, respiratory symptoms. And it's very insidious. You know, when people get a, a COVID pneumonia or a regular bacterial pneumonia, they can get sick very, very quickly. But this one, you know, it's very insidious. You know, it can... You know, people could have symptoms for weeks, months, or even a few years before being diagnosed with this infection. And because of that, oftentimes their lung disease is far advanced um, by the time they uh, get a CT scan and get a diagnosis of NTM lung disease. We probably also want to point out that the treatment for the disease is removal of the, the diseased lobe or even an entire lung. And that has a high rate of morbidity and, and post-surgical complications um, and a very, very high rate of mortality as well, about a 1 in 50 chance of dying from just a surgical procedure. And that's, that's not a very good option, unfortunately. Yeah, and uh, just along that line, um, you know, that's why um, Alan Shanko asked me whether I could get some lung specimens for him because... Uh, University of Colorado, through National Jewish, probably does more lung resections for NTM lung disease than any other centers in the country. Uh, because National Jewish is a referral center for people with NTM lung disease, but National Jewish doesn't have uh, a surgical department. They don't have an operating room. Um, they've collaborated for a number of years with University of Colorado uh, Hospital to do the lung resection there. And it all started with um, the, the treatment for multi-drug resistant tuberculosis. Before we had decent drugs for multi-drug resistant tuberculosis, one of the treatments as um, Dr. Schenkel referred to is surgical lung resection to remove that really bad cavity that has a high bacterial burden. Um, and so the clinicians here at National Jewish have sort of applied that same concept to people with severe NTM lung disease who they can't seem to get better 
with just antibiotics alone that they undergo for lung resection. And that's how we were able to get those lung specimen um, for Dr. Schenkel. And as he mentioned, you know, no one's really looked at the cells from the actual lung tissues themselves. You know, people have, you know, looked at the sputum, you know, what they coughed up. They've looked at washings from the lung and maybe even probably some biopsies, small biopsies, but not the big piece of lung tissue that we were able to get for him. Okay. So knowing a little of that background, Dr. Chankel, let's go back to this biofilm that we talked about. I know, Dr. Chan, you said that this is kind of where these bacteria live in the environment is in this biofilm. But Dr. Chankel, you're also talking about a biofilm that's in the lungs that you 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 could not find many bacteria in or couldn't exactly elucidate what was going on there. So tell me a bit about that. So the idea that we originally had, um, our hypothesis to start off with was that the, the mycobacteria, because they use biofilms kind of as a fortress, um, that they were doing the same thing in, in the lung that they were doing in the environment to survive really harsh conditions with all these antibiotics around. And so I expected to see lots and lots of bacteria in the lung. Um, and <laughs> I was really quite surprised, and this is uh, sometimes the interesting, rewarding part of science, is that the antibiotics appear to be working. There were a few bacteria in there, but they were very uncommon. And I called Ed and I said, Ed, I'm not seeing many bacteria here. What's up with these samples? And, and Ed got back to me and he said, yeah, the, when we try and culture the bacteria from the lungs, they're not getting many bacteria back. And they call this posse bacillary or a paucity of bacteria, uh, which means a you know, near absence of them. And so the clinical you know, lab was getting the same results as me with my microscope. There's not a lot of bacteria in there. Despite the few bacteria, there were massive numbers of, of, of white blood cells, you know, at war in the slung in the absence of, of large numbers of bacteria. And that's really weird. You usually see that kind of a reaction only when we have like a, a hypersensitivity disorder, something kind of like when you get poison ivy or you have a, a strong allergic reaction. And so my current hypothesis now is that um, this battle that's being fought in the lungs between the bacteria and the, the, the immune system is almost all immune-mediated damage at this point in time. The, the war is raging on in the absence of bacteria, causing just massive, massive damage. And that also kind of explains why we're seeing this in people who are immunocompetent or have a normal immune system. Um, perhaps as they're getting older and older, their immune system doesn't see the bacteria properly um, cleared out and thinks they still need to fight this battle and continues to do so um, abnormally. So this is a case of these lymphocytes, like the way I'm, I'm hearing that is they're just overactive. Like your own immune system is just like more active than it should be. And it's attacking itself. Is that right? Yeah, it's attacking, it's attacking the lung tissue, basically non-specifically, um, really in the absence of, a, of an enemy that's, that's there in any large numbers. Maybe it sees a few bacteria and just overreacts to them. And that's, that's what we're up, up against in some of these samples. Yeah, so the antibiotics that are being prescribed for this disease are actually working, you think. But yeah. there's something else that's going on. There's like a next step in the immune system where it's just kind of going a little bit haywire. Exactly, yeah. And, and like I said, the, the, the challenge for us is, you know, even though these are older, pe older people, they've seen a lot of things in their lives. Um, 
and they should have a, a controlled immune response to any bacteria, especially a bacteria that's not normally a threat. But the, 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 the immune system in these older folks seems to instead do the opposite. It sees this relatively harmless bacteria and just go crazy. And that, I think, is what's causing the disease in a, in a lot of these people. So when you looked at the these lung tissues, Dr. Shankel, I know you were you were just trying to do some basic science to understand what is in these samples that you were given. Um, tell us about some of the different cell populations that you found and maybe some of the techniques that you used in order to find those. So we did a couple of different things in collaboration with the clinicians down at, at um, Anschutz and, and National Jewish. Um, Ed mentioned we can use uh, computed tomography scans of the lung, which are very high resolution ways to map the lung. And so the first thing that we got collected was the data on that to show which of the lung lobes were being damaged um, before surgery. And then after surgery, we'd get the tissues out and we used just basically my, you know, a regular old microscope to look at the, the damage that was going on. And that's when I noticed these amazing collections of these, these lymphocytes in the lung space. Um, and lymphocytes, you know, they have a pretty unique appearance. We were also looking for a cell called a neutrophil, which is a cell that's really specialized at killing bacteria and yeast. And we expected to see lots and lots of neutrophils in these lung samples um, based on what people had seen in sputum and in, in washes of the lungs. Uh, in particular, with people who have cystic fibrosis, we see lots and lots of neutrophils um, fighting non-tuberculosis mycobacteria. But in these people with, with immunocompetent immune systems, we didn't see hardly any neutrophils at all. There were a few, but not in the quantities we expected. The difference was is we saw a whole bunch of killer cells. Um, these cells are supposed to kill cells that are infected so if you have a virus infection or a bacteria that infects inside of a cell, that acts as a factory for the pathogen, for the virus or the bacteria. And our killer cells kill those cells off so they no longer produce any more virus or bacteria. And I saw lots and lots of these killer cells. There are a couple of different flavors of them, um, probably more details than you guys need. But these killer cells, um, again, if they rampage on and on and on, can do lots and lots of damage to any kind of tissue. I'm sure listeners are thinking, and you've mentioned it a couple times, Dr. Shankle, that these are older people, older participants um, that you're getting these lung tissues from. And so I want to dive into that a little bit and talk about like the lifespan angle. Why is the Center for Healthy Aging interested in, in this question that you're studying? And I wonder if you can go into some of the the weird ancestry things that you were telling me about um, the kind of of the people who get this disorder. Ah, okay, yeah, that, that's a great question. So we're, you know, this is a disease of aging. Um, almost all of our samples were in women who were 30 or 30 years old or over, and a vast majority of them were in their 50s and 60s. Um, they, again, have normal immune systems, but, you know, have this debilitating lung disease. And when we look at the, the, the heritage of, of people who are, you know, most likely to get this disease, we don't see this very commonly in people who are of African um, American descent, at least in the United States. Um, and we don't see it in people who are Pacific Islander 
Um, but we do see it in Asian populations, people whose, whose ancestors came from China, Japan, Korea, and in Caucasian populations from Europe. Um, those, those populations both seem to be susceptible to this disease. And it's not clear at all why, you know, Asian, you know, Pacific Islanders or people from Africa would be less susceptible to that. But it certainly suggests that there's a, 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 a inherited component to it somehow. Hi, everyone. A small edit during production. Dr. Shankel emailed me after this interview and said he may not be entirely correct about ethnicity as a risk factor in NTM disease. Quote, I found a paper where the risk factor appears lower in Pacific Islanders than in people with Asian heritage, but about the same as Caucasians. And even then, it appears there may just not be enough data yet on ethnicity and NTM infections, end quote. Shankel hypothesizes that researchers will find in the future that ancestry doesn't matter as much as other risk factors, such as age and bronchiectasis, for example. If you need any evidence that science is an ongoing, ever-evolving process where we're constantly learning new things, then an edit to an interview I did less than three weeks ago is a pretty good example. Back to the episode for future directions. And so where are you now in your studies? You've kind of described the problem for us. Where are your future directions going with this partnership? So the thing that we want to do next is, is we want to apply a really cool modern technique called single cell sequencing to look at these, these lymphocyte populations in much more detail. This technique, actually, you take a lung sample and you purify single cell populations out of it. And then you can ask using a very cool um, sequencing technique, what kind of gene programs are on in each individual cell? And what that can tell you is it can tell you what kind of a cell it is and what it's doing at this time. And since we saw so many killer cells, we need to find out what kind of, of gene program they're doing. Because if we find out the gene program, we might be able to find drugs that are already available or maybe drugs that we need to develop that can target those gene programs and turn them off or inhibit them. You may have heard of monoclonal antibodies to treat diseases like autoimmune disorders. And if this disease is kind of a an overreaction and an attack on our own body, that's a lot like an autoimmune disorder. And these new monoclonal therapies that people have, you can actually target specifically gene programs. Um, a lot of them target inflammatory gene programs. And maybe if we target these same inflammatory programs, we might be able to turn off that overreactive response and, and help these people out. For the person who's sitting here wondering, again, why does all of this matter? Where, what is the hope, you know, five, 10 years down the road with a collaboration like this? What, what kind of advancements are you hoping to make? I think because um, most of the people with isolated um, lung disease due to NTM, we don't know why they got it. I mean, we, they obviously breathe it in from the environment, but why did they get it and not their spouse? Because they live in the same house, right? So I think if we can, and that single cell RNA sequencing, because you're looking at the host um, gene programming, 
uh, of the cells can potentially shed light on why they're more predisposed to the infection than somebody who lives in the same household and does the same things, but do not get the infection. So if we can find out why, um, why they're more susceptible, it goes a long way in trying to find a way to uh, treat that underlying problem so that they don't, because you know, you all, we're all gonna be constantly exposed to NTM in the environment because it's common environment. So if we can find out why they're susceptible and somehow correct it, whether pharmacologically or by other means, uh, you can potentially help, you know, not only cure their current infection, but potentially help uh, uh, prevent them from getting new infections. And, you know, I mean, you know, it's it's being tackled from, from all fronts, right? You know, I, um, you know, people are looking for potentially new antibiotics, better antibiotics, if you will, to treat the infection. Um, because they've made a lot of good progress with tuberculosis. And a lot of times um, with NTM, they're sort of trying to use the old drugs used for tuberculosis and test it to see whether they're effective against NTM. And the, the other problem with NTM is that unlike tuberculosis, which is just one species, um, one family of, of bug, NTM, there's like over 200 different varieties of NTM. Not all of them cause lung disease. You know, most of them are just sort of live in the environment and don't do much. But because there's so many different varieties, um, pharmacologic antibiotic treatment for them is much more challenging because one species of NTM may behave and may be more and may have different susceptibility to, to, to a spectrum of antibiotics than another species of NTM. Um, tuberculosis, if you will, is more uniform. You know, there is drug-resistant tuberculosis as well, but we made good progress in drugs for TB. Um, and, the, and the problem with drugs is that even if you find better drugs, you know, the bugs are pretty smart and they'll find ways to develop resistance to even new antibiotics. So I think getting um, tackling NTM lung infections from all fronts is important, not only to find out what, why is the host susceptible to it, but, but developing better antibiotics. You can probably tell we're, we're getting on the half hour and wrapping up a little bit. So I want to make sure I include this question. Um, this one that says, can you identify a major challenge in your field? that you believe must be met in order to realize real changes and increases in health span or healthy aging? Yeah, certainly with, with new technology, just in the last few years, this, this technology has revolutionized the way we study a lot of, of diseases in people because from just a small sample, you can get a, a much more detailed idea of, of all of the complex interactions that the cells have with each other and with their environment in that tissue. And that gives us the chance to find new therapies um, that we might not have previously considered um, or maybe had discovered in other places to, to try to treat these chronic diseases. I think the most horrible part for these patients is that some of them have been fighting these infections for a decade um, with no relief whatsoever. The antibiotics haven't proved to, to, to do the trick by themselves. And maybe if we figure out a way to help the immune system 
adjust or you know control itself, uh, maybe we can help these patients too. Yeah, um, just to add to that, um, I think education is very important. Um, education not only for clinicians, because even to this day, uh, we still see patients refer to National Jewish, uh, where their providers, their doctors told them, oh yeah, you got this NTM in your sputum, but your chest x-ray looks fine. So, and it's just, uh, it's just a colonizer. We find this in the environment, so don't worry about it, you know? So I think education for, for providers is important to tell them that, yeah, because this infection moves so slowly, people get put off guard, you know, and, and think it's not so important. And also education for the patients. Once they get the infection, they need to know how they get the infection in the first place so that they avoid getting a repeated infection. And it's very important not only take your antibiotics, but to do airway clearance because they have abnormal lung air, airways. They can't clear the secretions as well. And it sets up a sort of vicious cycle of more, more secretion, more NTM, and more inflammation and lung destruction. So um, education for the patients to not only take your antibiotics, but do your daily routine of airway clearance. Okay. So I want to open the floor. If, if there's, is there anything that we didn't discuss that you think we need to include that's important for this conversation? I, I want to thank the, the, the patients and the families who've um, been willing to be a part of these studies to help us out and help us understand what's going on there. Um, it's, it's always been really important for, for the scientists to, to acknowledge the, all the things that the families and the patients have to, to do um, to help us out. And this is really an important one. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. Yeah, I, I, I totally concur with that. And also add that, you know, I, I've attended a number of patient support groups with this type of infection. And I learn a lot from the patients, actually, um, because yeah. you know, they come up with, um, well, first of all, they ask really good questions that I don't know. So it makes us, you know, think and look up and investigate. But also they come up with um, unique ideas as well that that I don't think about simply because, you know, they live with their infection 24 seven and, and have, have time to think about a lot about this, so. That's great. Well, again, thank you both for being here and telling us a little bit about this. I really appreciate your time today. Uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks, Hannah, for the invitation. Enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Center for Healthy Aging at CSU. Remember to follow us on social media at CSU Healthy Aging and visit our website at healthyaging.colostate.edu. We will see you next time.